0: My name is Stephen Sindoni and thank you for tuning into the broadcast of Do the Dead Return. In today's program we will focus on the topic of reincarnation. Our story today is about the life of a man by the name of Edwin J Dingle. In today's program we will discover why the Tibetan Lamas took such an unusual interest in mister Edwin J. Dingle and gave him such extraordinary opportunity to learn their methods. On April 6, 1881, in England, a boy was born. He came and his mother went. There was no rejoicing. About the same time, in the formidable land of Tibet, in a temple in the heart of inscrutable Asia, wise men were mourning the passing of a beloved brother-lama, and mourning still more his infraction of their frigid code of conduct, an error which they held to be the psychic cause of his death. Believers in reincarnation, however, They confidently expected his return before the passing of many years. Though the two events took place on opposite sides of the world, though none imagined their connection at the time, though the one group spoke English and the other an ancient Asiatic tongue, though the one was west and the other east, there was a link. It was ordained that in the boy, just born, the twain should at last meet. The boy's name was Edwin John Dingle. At that time, the land of Tibet was practically a complete mystery to white men. Sheltered behind the highest mountains in the world, reached only by long hazardous journeys through the most difficult terrains known, where fierce blizzards above timberline and intermingling, awesome precipices met the daring adventurer, the country presented a forbidding problem to the would-be explorer. Still more forbidding was the attitude of its rulers, who invariably turned back at its doors the few intrepid Occidentals who braved the obstacles with which nature guarded a strange land. Marco Polo, in the days of Kublai Khan, some 800 years ago, thrilled the Western world with a spectacular story of his adventures in Tibet, being probably the first European ever to penetrate into this country, and he was followed by very, very few other Europeans, up to the birth of the boy in England. In other respects also, this forbidden land was unique. Due to the barriers which nature had given, it was the only land in the world which had enjoyed peace for thousands of years, for as far back as there was any record. It was the only country where the people and institutions could develop simply and naturally, could pursue the better things of life and probe the riddles of the ages without intervention by way of war or conquest without the gains of one generation being destroyed in the next. Wise were its leaders during these many centuries in keeping unsympathetic strangers out, wiser by far than Western rulers who are letting the monster of war and class hatred destroy civilization. But there were certain strangers from Oriental countries who were always welcome in this mystic land. They were not the warlords, or the commercial adventurers, or the high and mighty of the earth, nor indeed any whose life was confined to material things. But only those great souls, whose humble lives were devoted to things of the Spirit, the searches after the truth of life, and the relationship between man and the infinite, especially when, by an austere life of self-denial and self-sacrifice, profound thought and great spiritual attainment, they had shown their worthiness to be admitted to the mysteries preserved to the countless ages from the dim beginnings of man's enlightenment. To this very day in China, India, Siam, Burma, and even in Japan, adepts and seers who have reached the pinnacle of spiritual understanding turn to this mecca of eastern wisdom, making a pilgrimage when possible to Tibet, that they might taste of the surpassing knowledge in the keeping of a small group of wise men the latest of an unbroken chain of sages extending back for thousands of years to the very dawn of history. The mental and spiritual attainments of these wise men are almost beyond belief. Well known, responsible, and highly educated, respected authors have told of men controlling the heat of their bodies, raising one part to fever heat, reducing others to a lower temperature, with the power alone of thought, or the power that thought awakens. They tell of men sitting naked in below zero weather for hours upon hour and maintaining the entire body at such a fever heat that snow and ice around them are melted. Many travelers unanimously are agreed, however, that these seers possess remarkable powers of control over their minds and their bodies, that they are profound thinkers with strange spiritual insight. This applies, of course, only to the higher lamas not to those of lower status or the populace in general. The pearls are not cast before those incapable of appreciating them. Only a few earnest seekers are initiated into the secret wisdom and then only when they have demonstrated their worthiness through a period of years. This ancient wisdom was brought to Tibet 1200 years ago by Padma Savaha, professor at a great university in India and a man who was famous throughout the country for his mastery of the occult. With him he brought old manuscripts, secret documents of various kinds written in Sanskrit, that original language of the Aryan, many of which were hidden with mystic ceremonies for a future age when mankind was to be prepared for the understanding of their mysteries. For twelve hundred years, one group succeeded another in the land of Tibet, each passing along to the next of potent wisdom, until in time, a few score years ago, when the boy was born in England, and the latest group of those wise men were looking forward to the return of the brother Lama, who had just passed away. Did they foresee that this boy, born on the other side of the world, descended from the same noble and superior Indo-European race, which had produced the wisdom they cherished? Who later was to visit their land and be welcomed as the reincarnation of the deceased Brother Lama? Did they exert their strange occult powers to draw this boy from the other side of the world to mold his life and his desires in such a fashion that he was irresistibly, faithfully, unceasingly constrained to turn his thoughts and footsteps toward the Far East? No one knows but they, and they kept the secret. But the boy from earliest years was fascinated by everything pertaining to mystic Asia, maps, entranced him, geography was his chief interest, and the longing to visit remote and ancient countries was overwhelming. Grown to manhood, Edwin J. Dingle acted for a short time as a reporter for various English newspapers traveling in the British West Indies and elsewhere. Meantime, true to the inner impulse which turns his thoughts always toward the east, he looked for and found his opportunity. After competitive examinations, he was selected for position in Singapore. With high heart, he set out upon the long journey. A strange feeling came over him as the ship neared his destination. Instead of going towards a strange land, he seemed to be coming home after a long journey. There he joined the staff of a newspaper, the Straits Times. He entered with vigor into the life of the foreign colony, as any young man would. He made a success of his job. Opportunities in other fields were open to him as to any enterprising Englishman of that day and time. The world was crying for the products of the East. Soon rubber was to make prodigious fortunes for many of his friends. China was to establish the open door. Money seemed to flow like water. But the feverish life of the foreign colony soon lost its attraction for the young man. Among various races of the East which poured through his transfer point of Asia, he noticed certain individuals who appeared to have a calm strength superior to the nervous energy of the European. When in their presence, he felt as if he had some source of power unknown to the frenzied circle of Occidentals. They could be happy without excitement, successful without worry, enterprising without fear, courageous without bluster, apparently unconcerned with the business of living or making a living, but quietly efficient and capable nevertheless. One of these thought-provoking individuals worked in the printing plant. There seemed something mysterious about him, as if he were a great man in disguise occupying his humble position only for a time. The deference accorded him by other employees confirmed the impression the young englishman found himself extending to the sage an involuntary respect and unconscious reverence he found himself also doing favors for the mystic establishing a friendship one day the sage asked young dingle to come to a nearby temple at a certain hour in the evening to witness an important ceremony he went presently in a corner of the temple courtyard he saw pieces of iron being heated in a forge in another corner was the sage almost naked going through breathing exercises such as a young man had never seen before. As Mr. Dingle says, it was the first time I had ever seen a man really breathe. After a time, the attendants at the forge came across to the sage, carrying with tongues two red hot pieces of iron, upon which iron straps were riveted, they knelt at the feet of the sage and placed the pieces of iron beneath his feet, securing the straps over his insteps and around his ankles. While the young man looked on in amazement, his friend then walked slowly across the courtyard and back in what he now saw were red-hot sandals. Returning to the starting point, the sage sat down while the attendants quickly removed the sandals. Fearful that his friend had been hurt, the young man hastened across to him but could observe no injury. Hardly able to believe what he saw, he put his finger on the iron to see if it was really hot and burned himself severely. Though this happened several decades ago, to this day the scar in that burn may be seen on the finger of Mr. Dingle. From that day forward the young man became a disciple of the Sage of Singapore. He was instructed in certain methods and practices. He sought knowledge of the teachings of the East wherever he could find it, in books, manuscripts, from well-known mystics, and in temples. After he reached a certain point, however, the sage refused to teach him further unless he made a long pilgrimage. At first this requirement seemed insuperable. The young man, bred in Europe, could not look with oriental equanimity upon giving up his splendid position, his brilliant prospects. These were no light matters. But the sage, or guru, as teachers are called in the East, was adamant. The influences which had guided the young man's predilections from childhood finally prevailed. True however to his practical European training he sought for a way to make his pilgrimage self-supporting. The Boxer uprising having been suppressed the eyes of the world were upon China. He decided to make his pilgrimage in the remote interior of that country sections which at that time were little known and he would syndicate the story of his travels in newspapers throughout the world. Thus he was able to provide himself with a caravan for the journey, pack animals and natives to accompany him. The animals were used for supplies, cameras, instruments, the requirements being that the young man should travel on foot after reaching the interior. This he did except for short boat trips and an occasional ride to the next town when injured or sick. Though his trip was undertaken during the chaos following the Boxer Uprising, through many sections where a white man had never been seen, though he had many hair-breath escapes from bandits and twice from tigers, Mr. Dingle never carried a gun. He suffered from broken limbs, tropical diseases. Several times he recuperated in temples to, to the remote west of China, pursuing meantime his search for the inner wisdom, advancing always in his understanding of esoteric methods. The pilgrimage was a long one, arriving in Upper Burma almost dead from his hardships he had undergone. He saw his teacher again and was told, They are waiting for you in Tibet. Nothing more. Arrangements had already been made for Mr. Dingle's transportation to Rangoon and thence to England. It was doubtful whether he would live to complete the journey. It was almost certain that he could not survive the arduous trip to Tibet over mountain passes more than three miles above sea level, exposed to cold and fierce storms, and with, in that day, practically no conveniences for travelers. How powerful must have been the influences which impelled him to undertake the almost hopeless journey. True, Tibet in the heart of ageless Asia has been his dream since boyhood, that isolated spot on the map. That has always fascinated him. Wondrous were the tales about it which he had heard in various temples. Intriguing were the conjectures of the books he had read, for at that time the country was practically a complete mystery to Occidentals. The young husband's expedition by which England had attempted to invade the country in the nineties had been unaccountably turned back without a battle. Its rulers forbade the presence of white men in any of its sacred cities. Forbidden Tibet was the name the world had given the mysterious land. Even the most daring man in the best of health might have been deterred from an undertaking fraught with great hardships, danger and uncertainty. But a caravan was hastily assembled and Edwin John Dingle set out upon the journey. Entering Tibet from the east, the young man had not gone far before a strange feeling came upon him. Scenes were vaguely familiar. It seemed as if he had traveled this route before. Every day this feeling grew stronger. He could anticipate the scenes which would greet him as he turned the next bend of the trail. Finally he arrived before the entrance of a temple. Every stone was familiar to him. A feeling of great relief and contentment came over him. As if, after many years, he had finally arrived at the memory-cherished home of his boyhood. As he entered with awe the strangely familiar temple, the young man's overwrought body at last collapsed altogether. For four days and four nights he remained unconscious. On the fifth morning he awakened, the crisis passed. As his eyes opened, there stood before him, in the doorway, a benign old man. Presently the old man said art thou glad to be back? The young man was so confused that the question was repeated then he replied glad to be back Glad to be back back where? The young man knew that never in his lifetime had he been in this place before Finally the sage explained that in a former lifetime the young man had been one of the llamas in this very temple He and the old man had been boys together In his former lifetime, the young man had disobeyed the rules of the order and had met a violent death. He had been reborn in England while his boyhood companion had lived on at the temple, hence the young man's faithful urge to be always on the move until he came to rest at last in this ancient Tibetan temple. Whether or not all this was true, the young man did not actually know at the time. Whether he has since learned that it was true is something he will probably never tell. Have no tongue is the precept of the East regarding certain sacred matters. But whether true or not, the sage believed it, and therefore welcomed the young man as a cherished friend of his boyhood, giving the greatest gift in his power, wisdom of the inner circle of Tibet, which had been cherished for thousands of years. Fortunate was the young man. Otherwise, he would have received only the elementary view with which most other visitors in Tibet must be content. Even more fortunate was he that his particular sage had a personal interest in and a love for him. In Tibet, as in all other countries, the truly wise ones are few and far between. Here is elsewhere many are called but few are chosen. Among the lamas themselves, few are those who may be called masters. Indeed every resident in a lamasery is called a lama, some of them being mere laborers and artisans. The young man living in that Tibetan temple found his years of previous study and practice of the mystic wisdom of the East had prepared him for the postgraduate teachings which was now given him. Nevertheless, as the time for leaving approached, he was profoundly shocked when the master said, There will come a time, my son, when nothing will content thee but to teach. For he felt wholly unprepared for such a task. Wisdom brings humility. His wise master knew that he was unprepared, but after many, many years of study and practice, during which the wisdom learned became a part of his very being, the time predicted finally came, when nothing will content thee but to teach. Since 1927, That has been his mission. I'd like to thank everyone for watching Do the Dead Return.